Yeah, and that, that openness is very key uh, as we continue to move forward here. You might even say that we're trying to have an open-door policy in a lot of different ways. Amidst COVID and different health regulations, we're striving to keep that open-door policy which we've probably experienced in a number of different areas in our lives. You've probably heard that phrase before, I'm sure. Perhaps uh, at work or at school where a, an employer, a teacher, a, a principal has an open-door policy where, where anyone is always welcome. Even if the door is physically, literally physically closed, you're free to knock on it and come in so that there's open, transparent communication taking place. Sometimes there's an open-door policy that happens in our homes. Anyone have certain friends or family where there's sort of that, the door's always open to you kind of mentality, which means you can, in some cases, even like just literally walk in anytime you want to. Uh, let me tell you from experience, I won't tell any stories, but tell you from experience, it may be a good idea to knock first before you just walk into someone's house. Even if they told you you can, it's maybe good to knock on the door before you walk in. I once had a friend and a mentor who had sort of an open door policy with me as well. He looked at me across the table one day and he, did, he simply said to me the words, you have permission. And in that moment, just knowing the relationship he and I had and knowing the context that we were talking about, when he said those words, you have permission, we just knew with one another that meant any time, any reason, 4 p.m. or 4 a.m., you can call me. We're there for you. That, that open door aspect. And he was true to it, to, very true to his word on those, because we were there to support each other. Even though he lived across the country from me, we had that sort of a relationship with one another. Well, I believe that in churches that we should practice this open door policy as well that includes all of these things. It includes access to leadership and, and physical doors that are open for people to walk into, uh, ministries that are open for all people to participate in, a place where you can have that sense of belonging, all these ideas that encompass this open door policy. Also a place where you can feel that support and that care and that mentorship take place. Sound pretty good? Yeah, it sounds like a place that a lot of people would want to be involved in, but did you notice anything that might be missing from that aspect of an open-door policy? And as you think about that, I'll share with you an example that I came across. A number of years ago, I learned about an organization, sort of a new assembly of people of hundreds that then grew to thousands that were gathering on a Sunday morning. And this is about, about 10 years ago, this movement started to happen. And it encompassed all of these aspects of this open-door policy I just, I just highlighted. And they also include typical events you'd find on a Sunday morning assembly. They would, in about an hour and a half or an hour and a bit, they would sing some awesome songs. They'd have an inspirational talk, some quiet time of reflection, time of fellowship and support, relationship with one another. But there was one major difference between that and, and, and what distinguished it from what you might think I'm describing, which is your, sort of your traditional church, like at West Meadows. There's, there's one thing that made it very unique and very different, even though it looked like that. You see, this organization was called the Sunday Assembly. And it was the start of a movement called the Atheist Church Movement. And it has now grown to a global influence. It's the invention of Sanderson Jones and Pippa Evans, who are British comedians, and they were not joking when they started this atheist church movement. And here's what they said. It was shortly after they attended a Christmas Eve service at a church that they said, you know what, there's very little to dislike about church. You come together with wonderful people, you sing awesome songs, you have interesting talks, you think about self-improvement, you, you help each other and you help your community, all within the context of wonderful relationships. What is there not to like about that? Has anyone heard of this, this atheist church movement? 
That's been happening the last 10 years. It looks very much like your traditional church. The singing, the, the talking, the reflection, the, the fellowship that happens amongst people. They even have TV shows. If you have, the right, if you have the right TV channel, it shows some of those different spiritual type of shows. You can find these televised on TV now as well. Now, if you think about it, we probably shouldn't be shocked that, that these exist. They have all the makings of the traditional church, but they have one thing that's missing. See, they have the makings of the traditional church without the theology. And without the theology, they're therefore without the presence and the power of Jesus. But this isn't actually a new thing. It's, it's been around for about 10 years, but we shouldn't say it's a new thing. You see, there's a few times in Jesus' ministry where he actually warned that this would take place. And not just amongst the atheists that existed in the world in which he lived, in which we lived. He, he warned that this actually would take place within churches started by his own people. You see, churches that start faithful and founded upon the truth of Jesus Christ. Churches that proclaim the good news and they live their lives out to him and, and try to reveal that to the world around them. But then over time, they succumb to the temptation of what we can refer to as self-sufficiency. They start to trust in their own resources, their, their own wisdom, their own ability to overcome and to succeed. And to such people and to such assemblies who have fallen uh, fall into the temptation of self-sufficiency, Jesus uses these words found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. Probably heard this verse before. It's a familiar verse. It's, it's a very popular verse. It's often used as an invitation for an unbeliever to receive Jesus as their personal Savior. And you can see why. With, with good reason, you can see why it's used in that fashion. But there's also a reason I wanted to include it in the last week of our misquoted series. Because while we can see why that application fits this verse, I want to suggest to you today that that application is too narrow. That's too narrow of an application of this. You see, in this verse, not only is Jesus knocking on the hearts of the unbelievers who need to respond and to accept him into their lives, but he is also knocking upon the door of a church or upon the people of his church where they have left him outside. And so in our lives and in our church, it's important that periodically we pause to examine, are we abiding by an open-door policy with Jesus in our lives and in our church. Now, if you want to follow along, I invite you, if you turn to Revelation chapter 3, in your Bibles and your phones, if you want to use one of the pew Bibles, it's found on page 993. This is a section of, passage, a section of Scripture where, where seven letters are written to seven churches in the words of Jesus Christ himself. And they tend to follow a, a bit of a format. The format is this. He starts with a compliment which then goes to a complaint, which then goes to a command, which then goes to a commitment. And, and I, to give an example of what this looks like, I had to know, look no further than my community, Secord community Facebook page. Anyone on their community Facebook page? <laughs> so this example I'm going to share with you probably sounds pretty familiar because I think this is something we can relate to on those. And it goes kind of like this. I really like your dog. He's really cute. Compliment. I notice your dog's messing on my lawn, and you're not picking it up. Complaint. You need to look after picking up after your dog. Command. Or you're going to find a flaming bag of something on your doorstep. Commitment. Okay? So we've got 
we've got compliment, complaint, command, commitment. Does it sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> if you live in Secord, it sounds very familiar to what the Facebook pages are dominated by. So, there's the letters that he writes to the church. They follow this format, except for one. He has a hard time finding something to start with that he can affirm. And so Jesus takes a different angle. And the church in question here is the church of Laodicea, which is found in current modern-day western Turkey. And back in this time of, of the writing of Revelation, this was a flourishing city. A city flourishing to the point where it vied to be the most powerful city in the region. And it boasted things like, like a beautiful arena where they would hold gladiator games. They, it had a theater for the more cultured people of the time could go to the theater. They hosted conventions for other towns in the region to come to Laodicea so they could learn how to run a city and, 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 and civil issues and, and construction. They were a wealthy city. Wealthy because they had a very large, solid uh, banking institution within the community. They had a flourishing textiles industry. And they also had a medical school with a famous eye doctor who had created this eye solve that they could put on your eyes for, with, with healing capabilities from clay and sand that was found in the region. So they boasted all of these things. They had become very proud. They had become very self-sufficient, even to the point where a major earthquake hit Laodicea in 60 AD, and it destroyed much of the city. And at that time, the emperor offered to help them rebuild the city, but, but they refused his disaster relief because we've got it. We don't need anything outside of ourselves. We are wealthy. We are proud. We are self-sufficient. And so the culture of the city started to make its way into the DNA of the church. And as Jesus looks at this church, he finds nothing that he can commend about what he's observing. And so beginning in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, Jesus addresses a letter to them. And he feels the need to do this through first reintroducing himself to the church. It says in verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write these words. These are the words of the amen, of the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. These names refer to Jesus himself. He's expressing who he is, and he's kind of giving his credentials at the start of this letter. He's saying, I am the one true God. I am the ruler of all things. I am the one through whom all things were made and through whom all things exist. Now, does it seem odd to you that Jesus would need to introduce himself to a Christian church? That exists. It should seem odd to us. But it sets the tone for what's to come. You see, as proud as these people were, their city had one major problem. And it's a problem that everyone knew about, but no one liked to talk about. I'm from a, a city called Prince George. And Prince George is also a beautiful city. Lots to do. If, if you're outdoorsy, Camping, hunting, fishing, hiking, sledding, all sorts, even sometimes within city limits. You can do all of those things. A wonderful city to live, to raise a family, especially if you're outdoorsy. But it's got a secret. It stinks. <laughs> if you've ever been to Prince George, it's the first thing you'll find out. Because of all the pulp mills that exist there, it stinks. And if you mention it, people are offended. There's probably, I know there's other people here who are from Prince George. There's people watching online right now from Prince George. You're probably upset that I mentioned this, but I'm, I'm one of you. I'm from there. I can talk about these things, but we don't like to talk about it. Well, in Laodicea, they had an issue, and the issue was this. They didn't have any water source of their own, 
in order to get water to this prosperous city, they had to move it in from six miles away through a structure of aqueducts. And by the time it got to their town through all these terracotta pipes that they would run it through into the city, it was, it was just tepid and, and it was silted and it tasted gritty and terrible. And so with this in mind, Jesus uses this as an analogy as he says to them in verse 15, I know your deeds, that they are neither hot nor cold. And I, I wish they were one or the other, but because you, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This reference to the drinking water was by no means lost on them. They knew what he was talking about. They knew that Heropolis, which was 10 kilometers to the north, had these incredible hot springs that you can still go to to this very day. These incredible hot springs that you could, you could bathe in, you could cleanse, had healing properties. They knew there was hot water 10 kilometers to the north. They knew the town of Colossae, 20 kilometers to the east, was known for its cool clean, refreshing, invigorating water springs that it had. They knew this was all around them, both desirable, the hot springs in the cold, refreshing water, both desirable, both having value for people and for community. But have you ever gone out to your yard in the middle of summer and you're like, oh, I need a drink, and you turn on the garden hose and you go to take that quick drink? I don't think we do this in the current generation. I hear that kids aren't allowed to drink out of hoses anymore. I don't know. But those of us who have drank it out of a hose, you got to let it run for a while first, right? Because otherwise you get the water that's been sitting in the hose on the lawn, baking in the sun, and you get that first. You're expecting a refreshing drink, but it hits your mouth, and it is that, that warm, not refreshing, not pleasant. And what do you do? You spit it out. Jesus had considered how they were living their lives. He was considering the impact that they had upon their community. Jesus was considering the value of their good deeds towards the purpose of fulfilling the kingdom principles. And he sees nothing of value. Their deeds are like that lukewarm water and he wants nothing to do with them. He essentially says to them in this verse, I want water that refreshes I want water that has healing properties, but instead you are just like the very water you yourselves complain about. You make me want to puke, is literally what that verse says. Now, to be sure that they understand what was the root issue, he kind of calls them out in verse 17. Very things that they have placed their trust and their confidence in. You have a wealthy banking system. You think you're rich. You're spiritually poor. You have uh, eye medicine and a medical facility. You're spiritually blind. You have a thriving textile industry. You're spiritually naked, he tells them in this verse. They think they have everything that they need, but they're missing the most important thing that they need. And he says this in the next verse. E, gold that is refined with fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent, he says in verse 19. Like a loving parent, like a good friend, the rebuke is not punitive. It's not punishing them. It's not mean-spirited. The rebuke is meant to call them to correction. 
It's meant to bring about a change that leads them to a better life, a life with him. It's a call to repentance. It's a, it's a call to move from their existing way, from trusting in themselves, from trusting the things of this world, to return to him. To do a change, of course, what, re- what repentance means, and to return to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he reassures them of his motive and of his response that they can expect if they do this. And we come to verse 20 where he says, here I am. Here's our verse. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. I will eat with that person. See, they may have rejected Jesus. They may have excluded him from their lives and from their church. But he still loves them. He doesn't want to reject them. But the decision rests with them. And we see this in the famous painting by Holman Hunt that hangs in Oxford and in St. Paul's Cathedral. Of Jesus holding a lantern and knocking on the door of an ivy-covered cottage. There's no latch on the outside of the door. It can only be opened from the inside. And, and this painting, this famous painting, is a visible parable of what this looks like. Of how Jesus offered himself, all of himself, to bring about redemption for people, all people. Into personal relationship. And he brings with him his empowering presence. And the invitation here is to adopt an open-door policy with Jesus. But let's be clear of who he's speaking to in this passage. There's a few possibilities. The way that the verse can be applied. First, and most commonly, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is used to invite somebody who is an unbeliever to receive Jesus as their personal Savior. That's true. That is at the heart of the gospel message. That is at the heart of the good news about God revealed through Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that relationship with him, you may be hearing that knock on the door of your heart right now because the reality is this. God loves you. He knows you. He knows all the things you've done. He knows the good things. He, he knows the things that you want to trust in that bring prosperity, that bring you a sense of pride. He knows those things. But he also knows the things that you don't want people to see. That you don't want people to know about. He, he knows about those things too. He knows about the joys, and he knows about the hurts as well. But here's the beautiful thing. He still wants to have a relationship with you. He still wants to be the center of your life. He wants to say, you, you think you can trust in those things? You have no idea how good I am. You, you think you're not good enough for me because of these things, but you have no idea how much I love you. He still wants to be in that relationship with you. But here's the problem. He is perfect and he is holy. And we all know that we are less than that. Let's just leave it politely at that. We're not able to solve between us and God because of our sin. But Jesus came to pay the price. God sent his one and only son to pay the price, to pay it all. That's what John 3.16 is about. For God so loved the world in its entirety all of the people of the world, all of their proud parts, all of their sinful parts. He loves them. 
Enough that he sent his one only son to die for them so that whoever would believe in the gift, in the offering, whoever believed in the death of his son would not perish but instead would have that eternal fellowship, that eternal life that comes by accepting Jesus, by opening the door of our hearts and allowing him to come in. This is God's desire for all people. And if you do not have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he is knocking at the door of your heart. to open the door and to allow him to come in. It's true to this verse. It's often how this verse is applied, and there's merit to that. And if that's where you find yourself, today can be the day that you open the door to Christ and allow him to come in. But there's another application, as I mentioned, that's too narrow. It actually applies more broadly than that as well. You see, as we just looked at in the context of this passage, and as we looked at the prime application of it, Jesus is also calling to those who once knew him, who have shut him out of their, like the Laodicean church. Those who have turned kind of apathetic, who have turned inward, who trust in their selves and their own credentials to save themselves. See, for them too, his knock is his initiation to an invitation to experience his intention. And it's the same, that he still loves those people. He knows you and he wants to show you that he knows of your need for him. Now and especially for all of eternity. Clearly the church in Laodicea was able to accomplish some things on their own power and their own resources. Clearly they were able to do so. But the reality is, is that was all fleeting. It was like lukewarm water. It had limited value to them and to those around them. It was temporal. Because it had no ability to do anything beyond the immediate moment. Could they amass things in this world and in their town? Sure, they could build a town. But they showed through the earthquake that it can be leveled. They showed through the lack of relationship with Jesus that it is temporal and that one day it will stand for nothing as it passes through the fire and is consumed when they stand before Christ. Folks, I, I, I'm so grateful to be part of West Meadows. We're not a perfect church by any means. But I do believe that we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything that we do. I'm so proud that we can, in, in, you know, in the proper sense of the word, that we strive to keep Christ at the center and to serve his people in his name. Our mission is to invite people to experience new life with Jesus by living out his grace, truth, and his love. And we are inviting people to open the doors of their hearts to the call that Christ places upon them. We're inviting people to open those doors. And, and we do so, the means by which we do so, is by being demonstrations of his grace, truth, and love, knowing that if they would open the doors, they will also experience his grace, truth, and love. That's our mission. That's what we strive to continue to do every day, today, and going forward. So, whether you have professed a belief in the sufficiency of Christ... that brings you in a right relationship with God, or if you have yet to do so. The question is the same. The question is worth examining. Do you have an open-door policy with Jesus? And the answer to that question can be revealed by looking back briefly at how Jesus addressed this question with Laodicea. So here's the questions that we can self-process a little bit ourselves. By what name do you know Jesus? See, the names that we use for people and things indicate how well we know them and the relationship that we have with them. See, there are some people who know me as Pastor Mark. If you refer to me as Pastor Mark, 
there's a good chance you've heard me speak at some point from this platform. You probably know some topics that I, I tend to focus on <laughs> on times. I, I heard one cynical theologian say, every pastor has six topics. They just talk about six things. Different ways each week, but six things. <laughs> you probably know my six things. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not. You probably know what I don't like in my stuffing. Raisins. Don't put stuffing in. Don't put raisins. Thanksgiving's coming. Don't put raisins in the stuffing. Right? You know a bit of my personality. You know, for example, that I'm hilarious, right? See? You laughed. <laughs> but here's the thing. By the fact that you use the title Pastor Mark shows that you know me, but you probably don't know me personally. You see, there are some people who just see me, they go, hey, Mark. And you can assume that that person knows me a little bit better, that we're maybe close friends, that we've worked together for a lot of years, that there's, there's a more of a personal commitment. We've shared more personal moments together. We're, we're close because we just use the word Mark. But then there are those who possess the right to use a more specialized, more, more intimate term. There's only two people who can call me son. There's only a handful of people, three, now four, maybe soon to be five, one day six people who can call me dad. Only Nadine calls me. Well, I'm not going to tell you when Nadine calls me. It's pretty good, though. <laughs> she won't tell you either. Only one person. You see, Jesus was with his disciples after many, many months. He asked them, who do people say that I am? By what name do they know me? And, and based upon the name they know me, it shows how they're going to relate to me. So, so what type of relationship do I have with the people, he asked his disciples. And they offered him various names. Well, some, you know, different passages refer to you as the, the son of Joseph. Some will call you a prophet. Some, some Jesus, they think you're a bit of a madman. Some people think that you're a problem. Many are just not sure. Those are the names that we would see associated with Jesus. But then he turns to them, these men who had journeyed and been with him for many, many months, and he says, who do you say that I am? And in the moment of that silence, Peter took a chance. And Peter, in a way, kind of opened up his heart and his mind. And he said, you're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And when you think about Jesus, what name what nature, how familiar are you with Jesus? When you think of him, is he a teacher? There's some good words to live by. That's, that's the box Jesus fits into. Or, or sometimes the past years, this whole idea of a kind of a buddy Jesus appeared. It's kind of like a good luck charm. If I ever need him, buddy Jesus is him. People who think of him, but they revere him to the point where he is utterly unapproachable because he is just so in awe. Or maybe you're not sure. And if you don't have an answer to that question of who is Jesus, I can tell you this. It is probably the most important question that you will ever have to answer and figure out. I invite you to come to Alpha, which is all about answering who is Jesus and what difference does that make in my life. See, if the Laodicean church, Jesus had to reintroduce himself to them. He had to reintroduce who he was and his authority to them. He had to say, folks, I am the one true God. I am the one who is worthy and able to pay the price for your sins. I am the one who can make you righteous, to bring you into righteousness before God. But I am also the one who is personally knocking on the door of your heart. I'm the one who is personally wanting to have fellowship with you so that we can do life together. That's the first question. By what name do you know Jesus? Here's a second one. 
What do your deeds reveal about your relationship with Jesus? See, during Jesus' earthly ministry, there was many times that he equated a person's deeds with a person's spiritual nature. We see this in, in Matthew chapter 7, 16, 17. It says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Every good tree bears good fruit. Now, Jesus' desire for us to earn our salvation or so that we can prove our worthiness of salvation, he says, no, it, this is a, we read in James chapter 2 that, that these good works, these good deeds are the evidence of our relationship with Jesus. When your relationship with somebody that is, that is flourishing and healthy and prosperous and enjoyable, there is an outpouring of gratitude. Others to come and experience new life with Jesus as well. And so our good works become the means by which we outpour that to the people, but also the means by which we continue to grow in relationship with Jesus. But there's this constant pressure we're all familiar with, this constant pressure and temptation in the world we live in to take our foot off the gas pedal. Isn't there? You know that feeling? In a relationship with Jesus, I want to grow. I want to know him better. I want to deepen the intimacy of the name by which we refer to each other. But there's this pressure to take my foot off the gas pedal. But what happens when you're driving down the road, you take your foot off the gas pedal? Even if you don't hit the brake, what happens? You start to slow down. The friction of the tires on the road just naturally start to slow you down. You see, the same thing is true in our, our relationship with others and our relationship with Jesus. There is no such thing as neutral. We are either accelerating or we are slowing down. There is no true thing as neutral in our relationships. I experienced this once in my own life. There was a time when, uh, before I was a pastor, as many of you know, I was in business and traveling all over northern BC for work. It was at a point where I was traveling so much that I was home on weekends, but I was only home for a couple of days during one week. I would spend at least three weeks every month on the road. And I did that for a lot of years. And it reached a point where Nadine and I realized that we were living three lives. That she had her life when I was on the road. I had my life when I was on the road. And then we had our life when we were together. And here's the thing, our life together in our marriage would be inevitable. Nadine would eventually look at me in, in an exasperated voice. She would be like, when are you leaving? <laughs> because we were so used to, to being apart. And so I would just go on the road, go on a trip, make more money. But then I was on these road trips, and I would check into my hotel, and I'd meet some other, you know, different salesmen and businessmen and people who were traveling around, and we'd decide to go grab lunch and a drink and watch a game together and whatnot. And I, I'd get to meet a bunch of other guys who traveled northern BC as well. And it dawned on me after a while that there's a common factor amongst almost every single one of these guys that I was having. They were all divorced. And I started to connect the dots. That they were on, the, I'm on the same trajectory that they had been on. I'm just a few steps behind that they, like me, had stopped investing in that relationship, that their marriages had become lukewarm, and they had slipped away. The same thing can happen in our relationship with Jesus. We take a foot off the gas pedal. It's easy to withdraw. It's easy to drift away. It's easy to stop attending your life group, even this fall, if it happens to be online. It's easy to stop coming to church because West Meadows at Home exists, which is a beautiful tool, but it's not a substitute for in-person gathering. It's easy to say, oh, I don't want to drive the kids to youth, or I don't want to bring the kids to their class. 
See, amidst the pandemic we have in the world around us right now, I think there's another pandemic that's growing up in the church. And I don't just mean here. I mean, if you follow any of the, the, the pastors, chat boards, circles, articles that are being read, Carrie Newhoff, stuff like that, there's another pandemic that's hitting the church. And it's a pandemic of prayerlessness and dry devotional times that are becoming typical of many who have drifted from the Lord and shut him out of their lives during the last 18 months. I think that is going to be a pandemic within the church itself. So I ask you the question, what do your deeds reveal about the status of your relationship with Jesus? Are they hot? Are they healing? Are they bringing soothing help to people in yourself? Are, are, are they cold, meaning that are they refreshing? Do they, do they bring life and vitality? Or do you find they're more in that lukewarm category? And then one final question for you. Do you hear that sound? Do you hear the sound of the knocking? Do you need to open the door of your heart to invite him in? Because he will knock, but he will not barge. He will come in and clean up your life, purify your heart, walk with you in the days ahead, but only with permission. In Cleveland, Ohio, there is a woman who was dubbed the cleaning fairy, and she was recently arrested on outstanding warrants. You see, what she had been doing is she was breaking into people's homes and cleaning their homes without their permission. Now, people weren't sure what to do with this because they went unreported for a while because why am I, you know, where's the crime (laughs) in this? But police caught up with her while she was illegally shoveling somebody's driveway because incidents started to be reported You see, this lady by the name of Susan had started also not just breaking in and cleaning people's places, she had also started leaving $75 invoices for the cleaning (laughs) that she had done, at which point the homeowners and the police both found that the unsolicited cleaning was more of an intrusion than a favor. (laughs) There is no greater favor. There is nothing that somebody can do that we would approve of if they just force themselves in. Even a good thing. And there is no better favor, if you will, than the salvation that God offers to all people. The new life that he offers to all people. In John 10, 10, it reads, The thief comes to steal and to destroy and to kill, but I have come, Jesus says, that you may have life and have it to the full. But the new life that Jesus is talking about in this life and the life to come, he will not force it upon anybody. He will knock and he will wait. But if you open the door, his promise is that he will come in and he will clean up those parts of your life that need to be cleaned up. He, he will purify the areas that need to be purified. He will walk with you in this life and usher you into the life to come. And you will discover what it means to have that 10, 10, 10 out of 10 life, that John 10, 10 life that we read about where he says, I come to give you life. And the best part, There's no invoice. There's no invoice left behind. Why? Because it's paid in full. It's paid by the elements on the table. By the elements on the communion table in front of us is the price that was paid. The bread on the table that we'll partake of in a moment, symbolic of his body, in which he lived, in which he ministered, in which he taught, in which ultimately he submitted to the will of the Father and sacrificed upon the cross on our behalf representing us before the Father. Taking upon him the sins, those, those self-sufficiency, proud moments 
that we can sometimes trust him. The areas that we don't want him to see that we sometimes hide from him. Those were all placed upon him on the cross. The, the guilt of those things and also the sentencing of those things were placed upon the cross so that we who could not pay them or separated from God by them could be set free from them. How? By the cup. Symbolic of his blood, which was poured out as a payment for our sins. You see, our salvation was not free. That initiation or that intention through the invitation of the knocking on the door was not free. I may feel like it cost us nothing but an opening of a door, but it cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life and a momentary separation from the Father as the wrath and the sin was placed upon him. But through the giving of his life, we receive life now and for all eternity with God. So the knock on the door that you may hear is a knock on your heart if you've never accepted and said, thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for the sins that I could not pay. If you've never said thank you to Jesus and, and, and received his free gift of salvation made possible through the cross, that knock on the door is your invitation to open it, to welcome him into your life, and to live with him and for him from this day forward. But there may be others here who, who know that either over the last 18 months or even maybe even longer, at some point in your past, there was a sense of starting to pull back, take the foot off the gas pedal, to, to start to have that separation. And there may be a knock on your heart today saying, you have wandered. You have started to sideline me. I'm not mad. I just miss you. And it's a call, it's a reminder to open the door and allow Jesus to come in. And so before we take these elements through which we remember, celebrate, and say thank you to Jesus, I want to give you a moment of reflection to think of these things and to prepare your hearts for